Hello, I'm David Grimes, a calligrapher and penman from Portland, Oregon. And this is Cut the Craft. Like, <laughs> like on my back, like that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. Could just like, yeah, yeah. I think you mean like Leonardo. Is that is that what he was, Leonardo? Yeah. He was kind of the leader. Oh, you're one of those. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't. I liked um, I liked Donatello, even though all he had was a stick. <laughs> like, I was like, how is a stick going to go against swords? You have to deflect. You can never let the edge of the sword hit your stick. That's the technique. Oh. Yeah. I just pictured it getting, like, sliced in half all the time. <laughs> Everyone else has, like, their two weapons, you know, like, mm. Michelangelo's got his two nunchucks. Raphael's got his two sighs. Mm-hmm. And then Leonardo with his two swords. And then Donatello just has like a warehouse full of sticks. Because <laughs> they're just always getting cut in half. <laughs> like they're all in barrels. And there's just like, what's the rat um, What's the rat professor? His like job is he goes down there and he just like pulls the bristles off of brooms all day. And it's- <laughs> Which is... Which is perfect because his name is Master Splinter. No, oh, yeah, exactly. oh, my God. <laughs> Master Splinter. Oh, All right. Wow. Are we ready, to, uh, we ready to get into it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Well, uh, welcome to Cut the Craft, everybody. I'm Brian. And I'm Amy. And we are here with calligrapher David Grimes. David, welcome to the show. Well, I guess, do you, do you identify as a penman rather than a calligrapher? Oh, both are fine. And thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to clarify. Yeah, yeah, no, both are fine. I think there, I think there are some differences between them, but I, I do consider myself both. Okay, huh. cool. So David, can you tell us a little bit about your work and process and maybe go a little bit more in depth about what it is you make for listeners. And then also in the process of telling us that, tell us a little bit about Engrosser's script. All right. So I am a, a penman or calligrapher in the 21st century is a little bit of an antiquated profession. And <laughs> um, I only started doing this back in 2013, but I used to be a graphic designer. So I've kind of always had a interest in visual arts and things like that all the way back to middle school. Yeah. And uh, so i finally got to the point in my professional career where I decided that I was interested in hand lettering and that led me to calligraphy and calligraphy led me to penmanship and all of these little interesting mileposts along the way, I guess, have uh, delivered me to this point where now I'm a calligrapher and a penman and I specialize in a really specific part of historical um, writing, specifically from the United States of America uh, in the years, between the years of 1800 and uh, contemporary writing, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And um, that has been a smart choice, I guess, to specialize in that period rather than, say, medieval art or uh, something, you know, something earlier or more uh, obscure. As far as what I make, um, calligraphers make, <laughs> uh, <laughs> if we're talking about it from a professional standpoint, um, a professional calligrapher finds ways to celebrate words through uh, giving them importance through intention, I think. So mm-hmm. we take things that are important to people to say, and we find ways to represent those visually through basically demonstrating that a lot of care and uh, intention and uh, discipline was applied to the way that those words were recorded. And that can 
look a lot of different ways when people start asking what calligraphy is. Everyone likes to go to the etymology of it and they say, well, it comes from the Greek calligraphos, which is beautiful writing, but that's a little bit of a strange and ambiguous subjective definition <laughs> right because uh not everything that you want to celebrate or record needs to be beautiful and not everything that um you do from a calligraphy standpoint is technically writing as far as i'm concerned mm-hmm. um, a lot of it can be drawing or illustrating or various things so would you say it's almost more about like capturing the emotion of what it is the words that you're writing or the event that you're celebrating rather than just the idea of it yeah i would say um there's there are definitely multiple ways to look at it and the the vocabulary that you choose kind of almost always depends on where you come from and who your teachers are and what what framework i guess that your belief systems are based off of because um, there, there are all sorts of different names for different scripts through history. Like there are instances where a script may be called one thing by one people and then another people from another part of the world call it something completely different out of spite. And then both of those, you know, move forward and they both have <laughs> weight yeah. and they're picked up by historians. And, you know, there's like all these, I mean, it's a, it's very much an art that was driven by people and people are imperfect and have all these, you know, especially back then when communication is so limited, um, Mm -hmm. back then, meaning all the way back to, I guess uh, the (laughs) earliest style that I uh, know anything about is from 200. Um, you know, so that it's a, it's a lot of timeline to cover. And that's why I think specialization is so important. I, I'm going to try really hard today not to talk myself into a corner <laughs> about something of which I am not a specialist because even just having a, a kind of rudimentary framework of the last 200 years of American writing, it's like I'm, I, my manuscript that I'm working on is 150 pages long, single space with no images. And it's like, I can't even hardly say half of what I'm trying to say about one little facet of it. <laughs> wow. I was going to ask you, you mentioned that um, picking something like in grosser script is a smarter move than picking something further back and more obscure. Mm. And is that just because it's more familiar to your contemporary audience or... Why, why is that a yeah. smarter, considered a smarter yeah, move? Almost certainly. Uh, I guess I mean that from a commercial standpoint in okay. that mm. there are, <laughs> it's funny. I always use the, um, I use, always use that show Pawn Stars as a reference, <laughs> but like if you are one of the only people in the world that knows about something really obscure, like uh, fifth century artificial uh, uncle or sixth century artificial uncle or something like that. And uncle is a hand. Yeah, uncle. Yeah, is a hand. Okay, um, a European hand. Um, and uh, you're one of the only people in the world that has seen the manuscripts. And as far as like specializing in being on the cutting edge, as far as you can be on the cutting edge of something 1800 years old. Um, <laughs> like you you're know. the person who the History Channel calls for Kinda, that one yeah. facet right. yeah. of that one yeah. documentary. Yeah. yeah, and I've never had an opportunity like that with Ingrosscript, script, but I'm confident one will come someday when it's like <laughs> someone will call up and say something along the lines of like, oh, you know, we've got this document here and we want to date it. And uh, we think that you're the person to talk to because that we think there are some interesting characteristics of the writing. And then you get to go down and you go, oh, I can't believe that you have this. This is the long lost, you know, whatever, whatever. 
that's a that to me that's fascinating and i was not the kind of kid that liked museums or even enjoyed history but getting into um getting into calligraphy which uh has been called the art preservative because Ooh, it's a uh, it's an art that celebrates you know obviously the recording of history um mm. getting into that is something that's really sparked an interest in just, I mean, world history, um, anthropology, obviously like all these different facets of the way that nations have developed and their, how their education systems have developed and stuff. So specializing is, uh, is super important. And then I think that, um, uh, in grocery script is really a subset of a larger family called round hand, which is uh, probably the most recognized, uh, style of, general style of calligraphy in the world, especially in the Western world, because it comes kind of from England and Italy and uh, France and, and these areas. And uh, the Americans, obviously the colonists come from those same places. So we carried a lot of that heritage over with us. Um, mm -hmm. And so a lot of the things that we see is uniquely Western. Um, obviously a lot of, a lot of it's based off the Latin alphabet and all that, but that, that's not unique to Roundhand. Um, but a lot of those, those things are really familiar and people really enjoy them. And so in grocery script is a very specific type of round hand that has a lot of, uh, unique values and characteristics, and it draws people who are interested in calligraphy and interested in, I guess, the question of how far can they take something like the round hand that they've been learning on maybe a more casual basis. Um, and it gives them a, an opportunity or an avenue to do that. So it's like, I don't have to, as an engrosser script specialist, I don't have to worry about competing with too many people because it is kind of niche. Um, mm -hmm. but, uh, it is something that a lot of people can get interested in just by proximity to the other things that they're probably already doing. So you've mentioned round hand, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what that contrasts to, just so people can get an idea of what round hand looks like versus, I don't know, say pointy hand. <laughs> and um, and then also, if you wouldn't mind telling us like sort of what the term hand means versus script, or you know, most people think of styles of writing or lettering and fonts or typefaces. So mm -hmm. if you could kind of clear that up for us. Yeah. Well, if you imagine, so if you imagine what a, a type of calligraphy would look like, you could see that uh, it's obviously going to be round uh, by the, its namesake. And so when we start to think about what scripts can be, um, the different styles of writing that people have done over the course of human history, um, there was a point where all letters were made individually. So you make one letter and then you move typically to the right and then you place another letter and there's some amount of space between them. And there was a time when for sake of economy, penmen and scribes from the past stopped picking up their pen so much. And so the pen would drag between, uh, two letters and that would create, uh, what we tend to think of as being cursive. So a connected script that comes from the Latin cursus, which means to run. Uh, so a running hand being that the letters are running into one another. Uh, Ooh, I like that. Mm -hmm. Talking about some amount of speed or connectivity. Uh, so contrast that then to something like a text, which a lot of people could probably picture if I said the words Gothic or black letter. Um, and those are quadratic scripts in that they have, they're comprised of strokes that are essentially parallelograms or rectangles or squares. 
So they have four sides. Um, and so Roundhand is a script family. There are a bunch of different subsets of that, and it spans uh, over about, well, I guess 400 years um, from the, the late 1500s to contemporary. Hmm. And um, and that is reaching outside of my specialty, I should say. And that, <laughs> like, following that back, obviously that um, is of interest to me because I, I practice one of the subsets of Roundhand, but it takes quite a bit of energy and uh, research to be able to have a firm grasp on how anything starts. And so I'm focused more on the latter, the latter half of that 400 year period. Hmm. Um, so when people think about like non, when non-calligraphers think about calligraphy, a lot of times what people will say, uh, clients, for example, will say, oh, I, you know, I want this quote written out and I'd love it in this font. And uh, I, of course, I know what they mean. So there's no real point in correcting someone that's just trying to commission <laughs> some calligraphy. Well, I think what you meant to <laughs> yeah, say was. That's a, that's a great way to not get the job. Right. <laughs> uh, any of you <laughs> aspiring calligraphers out there. But it is... Um, it is kind of a part of the way that we learned about the idea that letters could look different from one another. So when we, when I was a kid, I'll just use my experience. When I was a kid, you know, you open up Microsoft word, you type something out and then you go and you set it in like a crazy, what it was it? Windlings font or something like that. Those little symbols fonts. <laughs> windings. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Windings. There you go. Um, but technically uh, when you're selecting different, aesthetically different letters in a, like a word processor, what you're doing is you're selecting typefaces and the word font actually comes from when type was all physically set. And so a font is just a point size of a typeface. So a good way to think about that is times new Roman. If you imagine 12 point font, the printer would need to have obviously every letter in that size and multiples because many words, right, have multiples of the same letter. And then they would need to have punctuation and any symbols or things like that. And if that printer wanted to print on a larger piece of paper or uh, at a larger size or something like that, then they would need a larger font. So they would maybe put the 12 point font away as in literally put it back in the type case um, and then pull out a larger font uh, and that's actually where the terms uh, lowercase and uppercase come from, and that the majuscule forms were typically kept in the top of the uh, typecase. And so you would have wow. to go to the uppercase to pull out the majuscule forms. Oh my gosh, you're like blowing wow. my mind over here. <laughs> cool. Everything is so, like, I love learning about the history of things, and I just, I don't know anything about this. It's completely fascinating. I feel like I'm just staying quiet the whole well, time. <laughs> <laughs> you do talk a little bit about, it sounds like formal requirements for different scripts. Um, I mm -hmm. hope I'm using the vocabulary correctly. Yeah, no, yeah, that's, that's right. So do you feel that that's restrictive in a way, or is it is it a good thing? If, if it does feel restrictive or feels like maybe you have to lean really heavily on a tradition, what are some things that you do to keep it interesting for yourself personally? Do you do like different colored inks or little flourishes in different ways? How does that work for you? Yeah. So the way that some people approach calligraphy, I guess I would include myself among these, is that we tend to use what's called an exemplar. Um, so an exemplar can be anything. It doesn't have to be a sheet, you know, a full alphabet. It could just be a specimen. I think the, the word exemplar 
actually technically just means like something that's a very good example of something you'd like to imitate. So technically, mm-hmm. like Brian could use a really nice book that he saw one time as an exemplar, and maybe that's not the right vocabulary for his discipline, but mm-hmm. that's the what calligraphers do. I think it works. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So, so what we do is we we look through history and we find examples of writing. Again, going back to like elevated writing, that's the nicest version of, you know, that style. And we say, wow, this is a really great sample. We should probably save this and take care of it and um, maybe print it, you know, or reproduce it or something. And then as people like me come along, in this case, uh, 100 years, 120 years later, they can go, okay, well, this is how this used to be done. And so, you know, through our logic or common sense, let us deduce what the tool is doing here and there and mm. the various techniques that can be used for different parts. So that's, there's a little bit of uh, like, you have to put on your Sherlock's home hat, Holmes hat from time to time mm-hmm. and look into things that aren't written, things that aren't recorded, like uh, things that are very obviously present, but no one ever talks about. And I think that from a, from a study standpoint, that to me is very fascinating. Like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm really intrigued by why things are formed the way that they are, why some things are really uncommon, whether things are, you know, uh, everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is when I, when I say traditional script, I tend to mean script that's like very heavily based off of a, a traditional historical sample. Now you contrast that in the current uh, calligraphic climate, I suppose, with there's a movement called the modern movement, um, which is basically, uh, uh, what would we call that? Uh, resistance, I guess, to that formality and structure. And there are, you know, multiple movements throughout history that have done things similar to this. But what this one, what's unique about this one is that it is, it seems to be more about reducing friction for entering into the art. Uh, so you want to make it less structured, less uh, geometrically particular, uh, et cetera, so that really the only barrier of entry is can you you know hold the pen? Can you move it in graceful ways? Can you envision you know balanced letter forms and things like that in your mind? And then that results in essentially freestyle uh, writing that's not necessarily confined by a specimen, a hundred year old specimen that you're trying to imitate or something like that. And so when you start to think about what your goals are uh, with calligraphy, again, I specialized pretty early. I went into a very small uh, part of history and I, I think I do it fairly well. Um, But there are a lot of people that are very, (laughs) very commercially successful, um, and socially successful or whatever, you know, revered, have great followings online and stuff that mm-hmm. don't bother with that side of calligraphy at all. I think that the tendency has certainly been to, uh, for someone in my position, has certainly been to look down on that over the last, you know, however many years, especially with calligraphy blowing up online. But I don't really adopt that same, I consider it kind of an elitist uh, perspective because I, one, because I came in so late, it's not like I've been doing this for 30 years and now there are new kids on the block just like ruining what calligraphy used to be. It's like, well, <laughs> I showed up at the same time. I just happened to be interested in this other thing. Um, right. But I also see a lot of value in, you know, the different reasons that people do calligraphy. Some people do it, you know, for work. Some people do it for personal development. Some people do it as like uh, 
therapy, you know, as a centering activity like meditation or um, anything like that. And so like, I'm, I'm kind of of the opinion that if people are, you know, pursuing some kind of handcraft, no matter what it is, you're all connected just by the mere nature of that. You're not like on Netflix or, you know, <laughs> whatever, you know, going out to the club or whatever it happens to be, we're all just like here kind of toiling at these things that are, um, I call them highly dexterous crafts crafts, but you're, we're all like working to seek improvement, whatever that means to us. Um, so anyway, going back to your question about color and inks and stuff, I don't necessarily use uh, materials or anything to like strike up fancy or interest uh, in my work because I'm, like I say, I'm pretty fulfilled by the difficulty of measuring myself up against the standard. But mm -hmm. you absolutely, I mean, if you're working calligraphy, you absolutely work in color. You work in 24 karat gold. You like learn how to gild. You learn about illumination. You learn about mixing pigments, pigments and grinding your ink and prepping your paper and um I mean, some calligraphers go as far as to learn about like making their own paper and learning about all the different types of sizing, you know, uh, surface sizing, engine sizing, all that kind of stuff. Um, so you, it's like with the material side, you can go really deep at some point you have to start considering how much time you have to invest in the art. And then you're, you're looking at like the diminishing returns, like, <laughs> like Brian could, you could go out and hunt down the deer and kill it and yeah. then skin yeah, it and exactly. then make all your own, you know, them, but that's not going to make you better at sewing bindings, which is what you probably really need to be better at or whatever. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I absolutely agree. I think there's a, I mean, a popular sort of opinion that a lot of people on the outside of bookbinding have is like, Oh, you're a, you're a bookbinder. Like you make books. So you make your own paper or like you marble your own paper. And, and it's like, well, that's like a whole different thing. Yeah. Paper <laughs> but, made. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but at the same time, I totally, you know, understand why people would think that because those things always go together. And, yeah. 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 Um, and, but I couldn't agree more with what you were saying earlier where it's sort of like, there's no point really these days, especially in being elitist about, um, you know, handcraft or like the way in which a per an individual chooses to pursue their chosen craft. Yeah. Mm. Because really it's just something that I think is really restorative or I liked your word centering where it's just like, we should just be happy that we're all doing this at all. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like I was looking at, um, I guess a picture maybe on something of Amy's where, there were a bunch of people sitting around under a tent carving spoons. It might have been like the big spoon day we had in ah, that's what it was. Yep. Yeah, yeah. That's what it was. And I was just picturing like, how cool is this? You know, I'm sure everyone's carving the spoon that they would prefer. I don't know if like people look over and see another person carving a spoon and they go, I wish I was carving that spoon or whatever. But, <laughs> but I'm just imagining like, you know, a group of people that are all connected by this common interest or you know passion or whatever and everyone's just kind of like there in their in their zone carving mm -hmm. on a spoon you know you hear all the little swing swing swings <laughs> and um you know there's the smell of the shavings in the air and everyone's like comfortable and familiar and and that is how i feel whenever i'm around letter people and i to some degree brian like that's how i feel around um book binders and paper makers and gilders and sign painters and tattoo artists and like anyone who shares this common thread of um, letters, like I just, mm. you can find common ground with them and, and say, you know, I, I, that's not the way I pursue it or I approach it, but 
we both are kind of stoked on the same thing. So that's yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's nice. How, yeah, it's it's been really fun and rewarding for me when I interact with people who are from like different facets of what I do. Because mm-hmm. in many ways, I'm sort of more my craft is assembling a bunch of different crafts in order to make something that's hopefully greater than the sum of its parts. Totally. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And where you have like content and in your case, someone who's, you know, expressing that content and then you have the people making the paper and the people tanning the leather and mm-hmm. uh, people spinning the thread or whatever you can, as you said, you can take it as far as you want. <laughs> yeah. Which there is something really, um, I guess, appealing about the idea of like, I, I refined all of these materials from the earth and I did all of this. And I, I could see going into that depth on certain aspects. Like I could definitely see at some point getting really into collecting my own pigments and learning about how to, um, you know, translate those types of things into the various colors that I might use. But mm-hmm. again, like there are people who specialize in that. And if you get a chance to work with someone who specializes in something like you should always do it because it's going to mm-hmm. give you an opportunity to learn, you know, more and, and appreciate more about the things that you are using, like in calligraphy. And I'm sure this is the same in um, bookbinding and uh, woodworking. But there are people that, you know, pick up the tool, they learn how it works, and then they get started on the effort. Um, and then they maybe don't ever ask the nuanced questions about the tool. And so they will be, they'll consider themselves familiar with something. And then they're five years down the line and someone says, Oh, you know, have you ever considered this? And they go, wow, I never, I never even thought about that. (laughs) Like, uh, the tensioning on a bandsaw, that's like a pretty nuanced thing. Like how tight do you like your, you know, how, Oh, I guess that's a, that's a plug-in tool, huh? Yeah. Do you have a treadle bandsaw? I don't. No, I don't have a treadle. I don't usually. I don't use bandsaw that often. No, Amy's a X person. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, X person. Yep, yep. (laughs) Get those plugged in tools. (laughs) Oh, I'm so glad that's catching on. Thank you, David. I'm gonna definitely run that back to my dad next time I see him. I'm gonna go. I need one of those power tools. And he's gonna go like what? And I go like a pickaxe. Something with some power behind it. I'm just going to like tape an extension cord onto an axe and send it to Amy. That's what you need. Yeah, really. <laughs> oh, I, since you mentioned tools, uh-huh. <laughs> we that you turn your own pens and inkwells. Has that changed your work or has how has it influenced what you're doing? Disclaimer, the inkwells are upcycled. So I will collect like brass that's already been formed and annealed and all that because I don't have the I don't have the infrastructure to do any of any of that um, metal work. But what I do is inkwells from the Victorian period were very gaudy and they just don't, they don't really sit well with like common sensibility. You know, I don't know. I have a writing desk here and if I, I'm looking at an inkwell right now and if it was on the base that it used to be on, that base was about the size of a dinner plate and it was, <laughs> oh <my gosh. laughs> and it, yeah, and it's like an inkwell that holds like an ounce of ink. So it's like the size of a <laughs> Pepto-Bismol cap, you know, and then <laughs> you have a dinner plate for that. So what I do is I take them and then normally I find where they're welded and I bust the bases off and then like thread a post for the bottom. And then I'll turn like a nice piece of hardwood to reduce the footprint so that I can use older, heavier inkwells on the desk without needing to have, give up my square footage. Um, I really, I really enjoy that. That is super therapeutic to me. And I really like the idea of taking something and looking at it, deciding what parts of it maybe make sense to carry forward in the future and what parts, you know, have served their purpose. 
Um, mm. To some degree, when you separate like an inkwell from its base and its base is heavily ornate or, you know, uh, obviously someone like took the time to design the cast or, you know, mm. whatever that came from. And I feel a little bad, but <laughs> but then when you put the inkwell on a new base, you kind of get that breath of relief. You're like, okay, there we go. You'll be fine for the next however many years. <laughs> Someone later on will be like, they used this nasty hardwood in the <laughs> early 21st yeah, century. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we, we should have put it on diamonds. <laughs> Where's my dinner plate? Yeah, exactly. So that's that. And that doesn't really change from a production standpoint. That doesn't change the way that your calligraphy is produced with the exception mm -hmm. of a lot of people dip out of like these little plastic jars called dinky dips or um, there's a company <laughs> called Nalgene who makes really fancy water bottles sold at REI. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. They sell a chemical grade, like multi-threaded um, one ounce jar and they sell that through the container store. I don't know if you guys have container stores in your parts of the country. Not where I am. Okay, I've cool. Heard of we have of one of them here and I was like, whoo, but they sell them in the travel <laughs> section and they're like these amazing jars, which if you're a calligraphy teacher, you're traveling a lot. So a, a leak proof jar is super desirable, right? You don't want to mm -hmm. open up your, I don't want to fly to New York and open up my luggage and go, oh, cool. All of my clothes are black. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we do a lot of things like even with a leak proof jar, I'll put a leak proof jar in a Ziploc bag and fill that Ziploc bag with toilet paper and then put that in another Ziploc bag filled with toilet paper. So if anything goes no awry, there's like all this absorbent. Are you regretting the use of all that toilet paper these days? Oh, so much. <laughs> I should have saved it. Yeah. Now actually, you know, my dad used to say, there's two things in life that people always need. And one of them was toilet paper. And I don't remember the other one. So maybe, <laughs> maybe it was death and taxes is one word. Death and taxes and toilet paper. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, the, the metal ink wells are nice because they're heavier. The downside of them is the lids are often welded on with a hinge. And that is a huge detraction from the writing spaces when you knock over your inkwell, which I've been writing for, uh, I guess, six and a half, almost seven years now. And I've spilled twice, I believe. So that's like not something that I have had be a common part of my experience, but a lot of people I know spill a lot. And actually, there's a really interesting story about that here in Portland. Apparently, there was a gentleman back in the day who's now passed away that if you spilled your ink and took a picture of the spill and sent it to him, he would send you back and like this anonymous certificate inducting you into this secret order called <laughs> the order of the black chrysanthemum. <laughs> it sounds like a Sherlock Holmes book. Kind of. Yeah. I don't know a whole lot about it, but um, our guild, our Portland society for calligraphy is it's their 50th year anniversary celebration year. So I know they're doing something with that and I'm excited to learn more about <laughs> these certificates. I absolutely oh love that. That That's is so, so cool. Yeah, I was just going to say that at an antique store, in the last couple of years, I bought like a little spill proof inkwell, Ooh. Um, which is really, it works really well. But the downside is like, you can't ever get the ink out of it. You can't, yeah. You can't <laughs> like, clean it. Yeah. Yeah. You can't clean it. And like, there was a dead fly in it when I bought it. And I, <laughs> I had, it was the hole was too, just too small to like get tweezers in there. Oh man. And so it was like almost impossible to get this fly out. <laughs> yeah. I, I've definitely, I've definitely had that problem with some of my inkwells. Like you put, like a lot of my work, my practice work and stuff gets done with walnut ink, which is essentially like crystallized peat, like rotted peat moss. But mm -hmm. if you use sumi ink, which is essentially soot, uh, that black just gets on everything. And unless you're getting like a toothbrush directly on it, it's just not coming off. 
so that you get you get pretty used to like okay i'm not going to put this ink in this clear ink well because i'm never going to get this thing clean <laughs> anyway as far as the as far as the holders go that was something that i got really inspired to do by my friend uh christopher yoke who lives in indiana he's such a cool guy he he's like a stay-at-home dad uh indiana hillbilly i i love him a lot so i think i can say that and he his thing his thing is like he says he's just this old crazy man out in the middle of a cornfield making wood dizzy. And so he, <laughs> he's a wood turner. <laughs> and so he puts the, he puts the, the stock on the lathe obviously. And will you know, turn these pins down. Technically wood turning is a really, I guess a really large, that can mean a lot of different things. There are bowl turners and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, furniture leg turners and stuff. Mm-hmm. Technically what we're doing is really, really small spindle turning. And, mm-hmm. um, as far as like the diameter of the the tail piece of a holder, they can go less than a millimeter. And when oh, you're turning something less than a millimeter, that's like 12 inches long, which I don't do because that's very difficult. Yeah. Um, you have to use uh, like a string steady to reduce the vibration. A lot of times you're mm. cutting with what's called a skew chisel. So you're trying mm-hmm. to ride the bevel of that knife into the wood. And, and like if you hit an inclusion or a, uh, you know, a burl or a, any kind of grain abnormality at all, then it's, it's a toothpick. I mean, it, a toothpick yeah. is thicker than some of the pens that we make. And so, you know, it snaps and that can be, uh, as a beginning turner, that was terrifying. I was like, I had this thing. Um, my first pen shop, if we can call it, that was in the broom closet on the third story of my apartment building. And I had, there was a plug-in out there and I went, oh man, I'm going to get a lathe and put it out here. And I did. And when I would turn it on, you could hear like, I just imagine my neighbors were like, what is that humming? (laughs) (laughs) I was up on the third story and I had no dust collection. And Oh my God. And so I was just in there with a bandana and I would like leave the door open to get a little fresh air. <laughs> and it's uh, like little Harry Potter who made like yeah, yeah. who made pens and literally, literally exactly that. And so then the the walls were unprimed, and so I had a pencil and I wrote uh, days since accidental dismount, and I would have like <laughs> I would have like a, a little tally chart. And when you dismount on a pin, like when a pin at a millimeter breaks, it's not scary. You know, it just breaks. And you go ah, you know, dang it, I was working on that for two hours or whatever. But when a, when a full size blank dismounts, you know, it's an inch by an inch that can be like, ching, ching, and you know, your, um, you know, your big sorby gouge comes like sharpened up towards your face or something. It's like, <laughs> and then you start to think about, um, the way that the speed of the surface of the stock is traveling as the diameter becomes smaller, the surface is traveling faster or it's traveling slower, excuse me. And then the mm-hmm. larger it is, it's traveling faster. So like bowl turners, like bowl turning can be very dangerous because even at a relatively low lathe speed, your bowl is moving a lot uh, of linear inches. And mm-hmm. so that if it catches, like that's why you use full tang tools is because you don't want to catch and snap a tool off and throw the shards at your throat or whatever. Oh I've, I've never seen anyone do that, but pin turning is pretty tame as far as that goes. <laughs> and um so, so I got really into I got really into the idea of being a pen turner and then I quickly realized that no I was actually a penman and that Chris is the I'll just brag on him he's the best pen maker in the world I think um What part of Indiana is he in? Uh farm I'm asking for a friend. Cornfield, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I actually I've sent him mail before and he sent me stuff I just don't I can't pull it off the top of my head. Indiana's not that big though. 
I'll figure it out later and tell you about it. Anyway, he's the... Corn doesn't really narrow it down, though. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he's... I think he's I think he's the best pin maker in the world. And and I only... I say that for a couple of reasons. The caveat about Chris is that he is not a penman himself. He, you know, trains penmanship a little bit, I know, in his spare time and stuff. And he's uh, the descendant of a penman. So that's kind of cool. Mm. Is that his... I think his grandfather was penman. But... Uh, he doesn't do a lot of writing himself. So the one downside of that is that uh, if he was a penman and he was the world's best pen maker, then it would be like a very obvious that if you were going to get a pen, you should just definitely get it from him. There's no reason to get it from anywhere else because his expertise plus his skill would like mm, both inform right. each other. Sure. So that's the one thing about that. But all that considered, um, he's made like 10,000 pens over the last however many years. And, wow. uh, and he, you know, he's very widely uh, revered and respected. I've never seen a bad pen from him, um, which I, having worked with like a lot of students in workshops and stuff, people show up with all sorts of tools. And, and it's not like when you say a bad pen, there are a lot of things about pens that can just be different and don't matter. Like the length of the tail doesn't matter. Uh, the thickness of the part that you hold, that kind of matters, but not so much. There are um, some specifics about the way that the point, the actual steel pin point that we insert into them, the way that that is oriented via the relationship of the wood to your hand. And that's mm-hmm. where that, if you have experience as a pinman, that type of nuance, you start to understand and you can like set them up in certain ways. So we call that adjusting them. And, um, I think, you know, obviously being a pinman myself and understanding at, to a fairly high level, how I write, uh, I've been able to make pins that I don't think that Chris could have made for me. I've never, you know, given him the chance to make uh, make one of these super adjusted pens for me. I'm sure he's capable of anything. But the point is uh, that if you are a <laughs> pen maker and a penman, then there's definitely some amount of uh, you're making something that's uniquely suited for your anatomy. And I have like, you know, mm-hmm. I have big clampering hands. Well, because I've seen those like pens that are, you know, the nib, the little steel part. Or mm-hmm. is that the right term for it? Nib? Yeah. Nib or pen. Yep. Okay, or or just pen. Okay, so is like offset from the handle. Yes, so that's called an oblique holder, and that's actually specifically what I'm talking about um, oh, okay. when I'm talking about the adjustments. Is that little piece of brass can be bent in basically every axis you can imagine, but I I consider it from like the principal axis axis of a of a airplane. So you have pitch roll yaw, mm-hmm. um, and that is directly dependent on like how big is your hand when it's holding the holder? Where does your elbow sit out from your side? How do you sit? How do you sit relative to to the table? How is your paper oriented to you? Like all these different um, considerations, which Chris is definitely aware of all of them. And I shouldn't just talk about Chris because there are a lot of really talented pen makers in the world. But um, I really advocate that like if people have an interest in any amount of woodworking, which I just always have. I mean, my dad has been a builder my whole life. And he just bought a cabinet shop like three years ago. So, you know, we've got, I've just been around like a bandsaw and a table saw and a lathe and a drill press and all these things. A lot of plugged in tools. So many plugged in tools, you know, and so just having been around all that, like, of course, picking up like a little hobby lathe and making my own pen was not a big deal for me. But if you're the kind, if listeners are like the kind of people that are interested in making things from hand, making a pen is pretty straightforward. It's like, you turn a cylinder, <laughs> you turn a square into a cylinder, and then you cut it off, and then you hold it in your hand like you would a pencil, and then you cut a little slit in the side, and you put one of these brass flanges in it, 
And that's pretty much all there is to it. I mean, there's the nuance of what finish do you choose and what contour do you want for the, you know, the design and that kind of stuff is all, all important to some degree, but they're really pretty simple devices. I was going to ask, I'm i I'm left-handed. Oh, I'm sorry. Is there, is there any hope for me to be a pen? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, there are a lot of really accomplished, uh, his, both historical penmen and contemporary penmen. Um, I have a lot of left-handed students that do that do amazing work. Uh, I will say, the problem with it. Choose your words carefully, David. Backtracking a little bit, I have a friend. <laughs> I have a friend who's an educator, and when he was getting his teaching degree, I asked him, you know, being clear, I said, "Hey, you know, when you guys are talking about writing in early childhood development, what do you guys think about left-handed people?" And he said that his program literally recommended that you put the left people all together and put them in the back of the room and ignore them. What? <laughs> and I won't. I won't go into any more details about who he is or where he went to school, but. I've definitely seen that. Oh my <laughs> um, gosh. Basically, you get written off as being a problem, and the, and it stems from a couple of things. The first is that <laughs> teachers aren't trained in penmanship, right? I mean, you, to be a first grade teacher, it's not like you had to sit down and submit for an exam on your penmanship. So they get a worksheet, right. and the worksheet says, teach the kids to drag their pencil around on the paper in this shape. And right. it's kind of just like, okay, put two and two together and teach kids to write. But if a teacher is right-handed and they have a left-handed student and they're trying to manage like 40 little rugrats, you know, all playing with shaving cream or whatever, <laughs> like it's, I can see how it might be like, okay, well just go sit in that corner with these other kids and like you guys can figure it out amongst yourselves, which is unfortunate, but that comes to uh, you know the topic of whether or not handwriting is um, really important for kids to learn anymore and why schools yeah. are dropping it all together and stuff. So let, let's let's go into that if if you're ready. Did you have something sure, else yeah. to say? Well, Brian was asking if he could be a penman, so I was just going to say, of course, oh. Brian. But you'll have to trade <laughs> me and teach me how to be a bookbinder. <laughs> deal, deal. That's a great deal. So I had recently heard that cursive in a lot of schools is just not being taught at all. And so then we, were, Brian and I, were talking about it, and then he said, you know we should probably make a distinction between cursive and calligraphy and penmanship. And uh -huh. what are, what, what do those words mean? And then what do you think about this ability to write in cursive, not being taught in schools? And how does that, how does that affect your work or what do you think about it? And then maybe you could talk a little bit about how the digital age is affecting your work uh -huh. and your craft. Yeah. Those are, that's actually a really robust, well, worded question can you guess that amy came up with it <laughs> no no way <laughs> um, it's missing 80s action movie references but i won't talk about it. <gasps> that's House. that is Road a big House. hole in my resume <laughs> <laughs> okay so first let's just tackle the words up front cursive uh like we talked about earlier comes from this idea of letters being connected so technically cursive means just connected letters um mm -hmm. but when people think cursive, we have to think of words as uh, their colloquial equivalent, not just their, you know, etymological origin, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. words change and people from different, uh, you know, areas and um, regions use them differently. So mm -hmm. cursive, I would say, is a type of penmanship. Penmanship is really just the discipline of learning to wield the pen. That's kind of how I like to think of it. Like mm -hmm. the... Uh, all of the things that go into that, you know, the training, the learning of the styles, the things that you do with it, all that. 
writing can be thought of as recording thought termed speech through phonetic characters. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we have characters. So all of these things are like, they're words for essentially the same thing. You know, you pick up a stick and you make some marks on something or you use your finger and you make some marks in the dirt or you use a spray can and you spray some graffiti on the wall or whatever. Mm -hmm. We're like recording mm -hmm. things that are in our brains out into the world and we're leaving them as what I would term letter art. So with all of that said, you know, you're getting into this realm of, is there a difference between penmanship and calligraphy, which is really the question of, is there a difference between uh, utilitarian use of the pen and uh, artistic use of the pen? So that's how most people tend to think mm. of uh, calligraphy is like, it's an artistic thing. And a lot of people think of uh, penmanship as it's a utilitarian thing. So penmanship, handwriting, um, those maybe are somewhat synonymous in certain situations. So the words, you know, the words can be confusing and depending on who you ask, I'm sure other people have really strong opinions about them. I just don't really care about the um, semantics of that kind of stuff. And it leads right. to arguments amongst, You're you know, right. uh, people within the community, which I'm of the opinion that if something leads to an argument that when settled will serve no benefit, then it's something that you shouldn't talk about at a, <laughs> at a deep level. It's, and that's fine. You know, just let everyone have their, their thing. As far as like, kids being taught penmanship. I was taught print when I was in the first grade. And then I was probably taught to some degree uh, a rounded manuscript hand. I don't remember if it was Zane or Blozer. I, I wasn't taught cursive for very long, but it was right about the time when I believe that uh, they were reevaluating some of the assets of Common Core. And they were trying to figure out whether or not everyone needed to learn cursive or no one needed to learn cursive. And so when I was in the sixth grade, I want to say, my teacher told us, you know, when you get to seventh grade, if you write your assignments in print and not in cursive, then they won't be accepted. And so everyone goes like, oh, no, we have to learn cursive. And then seventh <laughs> grade came and literally no one ever asked me for cursive anything. <laughs> um, which, like I was saying earlier, led me to feel like, okay, well, I'll just be a stupid boy with stupid boy handwriting and I'll have my value and my intelligence come through in other ways. And so I like would opt to type assignments when I could. Um, I remember multiple times growing up where I was like embarrassed in front of a girl because I had written something and someone like made a joke about how bad my writing was and like those mm -hmm. types of things. And so that's kind of like formative as far as what got me into calligraphy. Dang. But your, your, the other aspect of your question is like, what does that, how does that affect me? The first thing is, I think it's interesting. I don't have kids, but Kids these days, <laughs> I keep saying that. <laughs> kids these days. Kids these days are being issued laptops and tablets like at a super early age. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you go to I don't know how many friends you guys have with kids, but you go to school and you get uh, you get like a Chromebook assigned to you, and your parent puts down oh a deposit, gosh. and you like carry that around. And I'm, I mean, what? like to the tune of like every kid has a Chromebook, and I was it was like something as low as like the sixth grade or something like that. What? Wow. Um, and so the, there are benefits to that, right? Kids don't have to have the back issues of carrying around all those ridiculous textbooks. Um, <laughs> all of your stuff is stored in one place. It's somewhat, um, you're able to like consistently format assignment submissions. Kids can work on their homework and interact with the teacher. You know, there's all these benefits. But then you look at what are the benefits of, of writing, of actually writing by hand. Um, there are... I'm kind of talking out of my depth on this subject, but there are some interesting studies where they're talking about like 
the cognitive and memory recall benefits of writing things by hand. So the general mm-hmm. consensus is like, if you write something by hand, you'll remember it better. Kids these days um, are capable of, <laughs> you know, they're capable of typing at an at a, at alarmingly early age. Um, you know, speech to text is a thing now uh, as we experience more advancements in uh, neural interface technology, you're going to have thought to text soon, so way sooner than later. I would say in the next 10 years, we'll have the ability for people just to like record literally what they're thinking um, via whether it's via like a diode or a surgical implant or like a, a helmet you put on, or I don't know what the technology will look like, but that mm-hmm. seems to be the way that things are progressing. And it all goes back to that issue of the latency, right? If a kid has to write a thousand words on why Napoleon did whatever he did, that is going to take them a lot longer to do by hand than it would typing. And it'll take a lot longer to type than it would for them to speak it. And then it'll take a lot longer to speak it than it would to think it. And if you can get kids to finish their assignments and complete their academic study or faster, then they have more time for playing kickball or studying more complex things or learning an instrument. Yeah, I was going to say, or for more studies. Cause yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, seems like, it seems like all of the technology that we've developed, they're like, Oh great. Now we have time to cram more stuff into your day. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, which like it's not like it's resulting in less work. No, for the kids. Yeah. but at the same time, I wonder if, uh, you know, the curriculum that's outlined at a national level or even like a, just a worldwide educational level, if that is trending towards that we are raising one of the most proficient generations that ever lived right now. I mean, I certainly feel a lot more competent in a lot of areas than I'm sure my dad did when he was my age, just by nature of having access to the internet, right? So I'm like, I want to learn how to tune a carburetor. I could figure that out in like two hours versus, you know, if my dad didn't know how to do that, which I'm sure he does, <laughs> he could, uh, <laughs> he would, he'd have to like go to the mechanic shop and like trade a Budweiser and like sweeping up for a half hour lesson on how to do it or whatever. The way it affects me personally is again, probably sacrilegious to say, but like the less people that know how to write by cursive, the better I, off I am because I'm more rare. <laughs> <laughs> So to some degree, it'd be like, well, if I, if everyone was a, you know, super proficient penman, then I would be less desirable both to clients and to other um, students, you know, as a teacher and things like that. So I'm, I'm at least, I have to at least acknowledge that I do benefit from the fact that it is not so common anymore. The downside of it is that I think that there are a lot, I've experienced a lot of like personal benefits, I would say. Uh, from like a character standpoint, standpoint or a, a self-esteem standpoint that are directly related to my uh, my experience of you know of pursuing penmanship, and I think that that is something that I wouldn't wish on like a kid not being able to experience, especially knowing how much I've grown as an adult directly as a result of this. I think that you know there are maybe things that I regret from the past that I wouldn't have found myself in that position if I had been, for example, like a more studious person or a more persistent or diligent person. Or if I understood that even when things don't come naturally to me, like persistence will eventually lead me to a point where they do feel kind of instinctual. Like there were a lot of things from an athletic standpoint that I, that I would have loved to have done when I was younger and my body was more supple and agile and, uh, <laughs> and I probably missed out on those just by nature of like having something in my mind that said, ah, you're just not cut out for that. And I think through penmanship, right. I've definitely just like that has been squashed out of me. There are things that you can watch people do with a pen that I think look otherworldly. You're like, I can't believe a human being is capable of that. And 
while I can't do all of those things, I definitely feel confident that I will eventually be able to do them. I mean, I guess it seems like you're speaking to the empowerment of doing something that you weren't necessarily quote unquote cut out for. It sounds like you had some experiences in your past where people were directly making fun of your handwriting. Yeah. And then this was a way of conquering that. And now you're kind of like, well, what else can I do that I thought I couldn't do? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's all, everything's a metaphor for everything else. Yeah. <laughs> With mechanical pencils, one can feel like they're doing something for themselves when they pop the eraser off and put in the graphite. And a case can be made that one benefit they have is this ability for reuse. That, and the way you can snap off the clip and use it like a skateboard with your fingers. On the other hand, there's a wooden pencil, bound to the graphite. You can see your use of this writing utensil by the condition it is in and how much is left. There's a satisfaction that comes with sharpening it down to a nub, and there's also that trick where you wiggle it and it looks bendy like rubber. Both function well enough, and both involve some inevitable waste. I'd say pick your poison, but lead pencils stopped being made in 1978, and the reality is that this debate is being typed over while it's still being written, with children knowing how to type on touchscreens well before they can sign their name. So to settle this, let's map the issue onto another topic. We all know the sadness behind the grocery store bag rolling along the beach like tumbleweed and the state of the planet implied by that image. But baskets, especially handmade baskets, are tried and true. They can last longer than you, don't pollute the ocean, and even if one busts, they can be repaired, which is incidentally how Who You'll Hear From next episode got started. April Stone is a self-taught ash basket weaver and a member of the Bad River Band of Lake Superior Chippewa, also known as Ojibwe, in Wisconsin. Like graphite and wood, her craft and her sense of place and community are bonded. That's point number one. Point number two, her use of the black ash tree, known for its flexibility, puts the rubber magic trick over the skateboard clip. Point number three being that old reliable the number two pencil, is synonymous with stability, a quality not only akin to Stone's baskets themselves, but to her harvesting process, her respect, protection, and relationship to the material she uses, and her connection to history through her craft. Uh, so David, you speak about the role um, preservation of American pen, penmanship plays in your work. Can uh -huh. you address why you find that that is important? And is American penmanship different from other forms of penmanship? Okay, so American penmanship is uh, just the specialty, right? It's the subset of the historical timeline that I am most interested in. Um, that tends to be, you know, a direct result of me wanting to understand the specific scripts that I study. Um, and so when you say American penmanship and you're talking about how that's different from the most, I guess the style or the nationality that's in closest proximity would be English or, um, like those European round hand styles that I was talking about uh -huh. and visually, yeah, there is a difference like there, the letter forms, 
look different. Uh, it's made with a different tool. Those, those styles were made with quills for the most part. Um, and mm -hmm. we use a steel pen. So there are like things that set it apart. Now that's not to say that there aren't commonalities between different styles. I mean, I think that even if you go back to like ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics, there's stuff in common between that and what I do, you know, today from sure. the mm -hmm. 1800s. Um, but I don't, when I say American penmanship, I don't mean it necessarily from a nationalist standpoint of like, Oh, I do American penmanship because it's the no. best. It just happens to be that the styles that, uh, the styles that I, and profit or uh, competent and proficient in um, those are those originate in the United States. So that's what I mean when I say that. As a calligrapher, you find just going touching back on an earlier subject of like how do you keep yourself interested? There is definitely a desire to want to learn about all the various different styles of writing and play with the different tools and experience. I guess the performance of like what it means to actually be able to produce something like that in the moment, uh, like uh, something like any of the different styles. Cause they all, they all feel a little bit different to write. They all look obviously different things like that. I, I've read parts of your, like your blog mm -hmm. and you talk about the role preservation, like oh. you're at your part of preserving American penmanship and like yeah. kind of how yeah. important that is to you. I was wondering yeah. if you could talk okay. a little bit about, about that. I call it amateur archivist endeavor. <laughs> so it's like my amateur archivist endeavor is, uh, I'm not trained in like library sciences and I don't have a archival certification or anything like that, but I am super passionate about the work that I do and the research that I'm conducting over the last, you know, 200 years, um, of American history. And it's not something that's necessarily just useful for my specific little section of the timeline. Historically, paper, as Brian probably knows, has not been uh, treated super well, you know, like it's exposed to sunlight and mildew and like all these different things that can cause it to deteriorate. And by nature of that, a lot of calligraphy is produced on paper or uh, vellum or, you know, whatever, and displayed in various formats, you know, I mean, like, it's not like back in the 1500s, they had UV protective glass or anything like that. Mm. <laughs> you have this history, which is like literally crumbling away. It's not as uh, the thing that's coming to mind is a crystal. <laughs> like it's not like going to be here in 2 million years and you can go, wow, that's a beautiful crystal. That's crazy. Mm. It's like unravaged by time. Like everything we have <laughs> right. as the generations go by gets more brown, gets more brittle. The letters yeah. literally flake off. A lot of the inks that used to be used were highly acidic. So they literally have eaten through the paper and you pick up a page and the letters will all fall out and you're just looking oh at like the, you know, the, holes that are left. I will say that that does seem to be something that is uh, really ramped up and heightened during the time period uh, that you're interested in. That's fascinating actually to know. Wow. Initially, they were literally mm -hmm. just grinding up wood um, <laughs> and using that in the paper, which has, is so acidic and that's why yeah. it's so brittle. So it's kind of interesting because, you know, you'll have books from say the Middle Ages or something like that that mm -hmm. are more or less in, I mean, yeah, they're showing six or 700 years worth of wear or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but they're in like more or less perfect shape, still completely functional, um, just old. But yeah. then you have books books and things from the uh, 19th and early 20th century that are just totally in shambles because once they started industrializing those processes, they, um, they really started to uh, come at an expense of like the final product. So even if you're... Wow. 
it was put together really well. It still just eats itself apart, um, which I don't think is a real expression. So, okay, then <laughs> I have a question then on uh, on that timeline prior to wood pulp, um, obviously like cotton and other fibrous papers were still made prior to that, but you're saying that by nature of them having less of an acidic, because like the manuscripts and the books that you're talking about, a lot of those are on skins, right? And they've been kept closed and they're, they've been kept closed for hundreds of years in a lot of cases. Right. So they're not going to be exposed to UV or moisture or things like that. If they're right. But okay. But okay. For example, I have a book, which isn't from the middle ages, but it's, um, I have a book from the 17th century. So like the 1600s uh-huh. and it's, I mean, it's old. It shows signs of wear, but the pages aren't yellowing at all. Wow. The leather's in good condition. The gold tooling's holding up. The whole overall book structure still functions totally satisfactorily. But yeah, it's kind of like essentially in paper. And I don't know, I'm not a paper maker, mm-hmm. even though I've made some paper. But <laughs> it seems to be that, uh, you know, you want pure cellulose yeah. in the paper to for it to consist of that. And so anytime you get more of like those woody, ligniny fibers uh-huh. um, or materials in the paper, that's when you start to see problems and breakdown uh, uh, within the sheets. And we'll have to have a paper maker on here so that they can actually explain this a little bit more eloquently to people. But I would totally listen to that episode. <laughs> but yeah, so the, but there are and there are means of producing wood pulp. Not all of it is bad. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of stuff made today. Yeah, that are processed um that's why i think why paper mills smell bad is because they're using some kind of sulfur-based compound Mm. to neutralize those acidic compounds and that's why it's so stinky because it smells like sulfur toots (laughs) Um, which i might need to edit that word out because that's just terrible Uh, (laughs) okay well yeah that's fascinating then so very much then uh in this time period the materials that are left over are more uh, fragile, I guess, by nature. Mm -hmm. And yeah, Yeah. so that results in that. As far as the why it's important to me, I've been really interested in the way that the community, I guess the generation of penmen uh, that studied this specific section of history before me, the way that they interpreted the history that was available to them. And that has manifested in a lot of ways as like a bunch of tall tales and like legends and things like that about Mm. famous men and women that were capable of, you know, various crazy technical prowess. And um, as I've gotten more into the interacting with the original, you know, documents and things like that, I've realized that a lot of those stories are essentially just stories. And that has, one, been really interesting to me because I'm wondering how much of the stuff that I'm looking at just wasn't available to the previous generation. And so they wouldn't have Mm. known, you know, that what they were saying was either misguided or incorrect. And the other side of it is I think that by working to remove barriers that exist between people that are interested and the original specimens or exemplars that we're studying from uh, via my archival, my amateur archival effort, I think that you start to humanize the people that we've all been kind of elevating um, and you start to make the entire art more approachable. Like I was saying, there are things that I have seen on pages of paper that I go, I have no idea how you can get to that, that level of skill, but 
that is compounded when you say, oh, and it was written by someone who never made a mistake and wrote with one eye and only had yeah. two fingers on their left hand or whatever. And you know, it was left handed. Yeah, yeah. And then I'm sitting here going, well, I've got both my eyes and all my fingers. I still can't do that. So again, it's just tripling me back to, I must be stupid or I must be right. untalented or whatever. And I don't want people to feel like that. I want people to look at stuff and go, that looks like a lot of work. Let's do it. Seeking to inspire rather than intimidate is always a worthwhile pursuit. <laughs> yeah, that's probably, that's an eloquent way of saying it. Well, thank you. You're welcome to use it. <laughs> I'll put it in my book and I'll just tag you right at the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of flows into a quote that I pulled from your blog. And I was just wondering if you would read that for us and then I'll ask a question. <laughs> okay. Um, I said... There are so many things that I have worked on calligraphically over the last five years that I've said, this is really cool and it's super valuable to people who are wrestling with this, but I just don't know how to share this as a photograph and thus I don't. I'll just deal with this little episode of struggle privately and then I'll start sharing again when I'm back on track with something that other people will be impressed by. This is the nature of the community being tied so intricately into the world of image-based social media. And it's a huge reason that I've worked so hard to develop myself as a writer and compose compelling captions to accompany my content over the years. There's an untapped reservoir of value in the triggering of emotions with our calligraphy artwork. And so much of that gets lost in the simple four by five picture on a tiny screen scrolling past at three pictures a second. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> I read that and I was like, oh man, I have to, I have to ask him about that. So... <laughs> You're touching on several things. One is pressure to perform, um, mm -hmm. an expectation for perfection and isolation, not being able to encompass everything you feel within your chosen platform for sharing. Um, can you elaborate on that? Like, how does it all, I don't know. How, oh, yeah. What do you think about that? I'm really interested. Well, it's tricky. I think it comes back to this idea that like when I got started on Instagram, I didn't have a following and I I had pictures of me eating hot dogs and, you know, also that's the regular <laughs> stuff that people put on their Instagram. Uh -huh. And, um, and then I started posting some calligraphy stuff and back in the day, like it was easier to find stuff you were interested in. So people would come out of, you know, wherever they came from and say, Hey, that's pretty cool. And you start to gain a following or you start to gain, like you make friends that are doing the same stuff you're doing. And then, mm -hmm it's like that gains momentum and years slip by and you're posting stuff and like people are watching you get better or, you know, switch directions or all these things. And I felt like I was going through these stages of like very much growing as a, as an artist, as a man, as a, as a person in front of everyone. Mm -hmm. And that, mm -hmm. um, that's really difficult when you have been doing that for so long and being so vulnerable in your captions for so long. And like, I basically treated Instagram like a diary for years, just like, Hey, this is what I'm thinking about. And I don't really have a place to say this. So I'll say it here. Mm -hmm. And then you transition into this point where, okay, now you're a professional and whoa, you're an aficionado and an expert and authority on your subject and like all these things. And then you have this backlog of like you doing a chili dog challenge, you know, <laughs> uh, on the 4th of July or whatever. Mm -hmm. So you take that down and you say goodbye to like the idea that, you have an authentic representation of yourself and you start thinking about yourself like, okay, I'm an artist now. So how do I, how do I put that forward? Mm -hmm. And it's just this vicious cycle of having a desire to over-optimize the way that other people see you, um, mm -hmm. having like a, this really strong um, resistance to like 
letting people make judgments about you. You want to like control the narrative in every situation and you want to, mm-hmm. um, you want to be the one who, you know, decides the negative things about you. So you don't let anything negative get out until you talk about it or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, right. and so for me, like I was mentioning, like calligraphy was a huge part of the, my formation into, I would say as an adult, as an adult and as a man. And I, went through a lot of, I've gone through some really weird things over the years, uh, in relationships and friendships with, um, like work opportunities that have come and gone. And, um, I've had a lot of opportunities for like directly because of calligraphy for a mirror to be put up right in front of me and being like, look at yourself, this is what you are. And I go like, ah, that's not what I want to be. So then I have Mm. to, you know, adjust accordingly. And so, you know, you have all of this really, I mean, everyone probably does with their chosen craft. Everyone has this really intimate relationship with their picture of their self, what they're striving towards, what the people, the mentors and the friends that they have, what those people think about them or what those people are doing, how we're measuring up to those people, what our role in our community is. Like everyone has these questions about essentially belonging. Um, mm-hmm. and I, and I always felt like, that was so much bigger than what you could fit into wanting to share on Instagram. And I mean, I've had like, I write these captions and I, a lot of times I will write a caption on, I write it on my phone and then I'll take it to Instagram and then I go to put it in and it's like, this caption is too long. Like it only copy pastes half of it. I go like, crap. Mm. Um, I guess I have to like cut down on what I want to say and I'll go back to notes and I'll, you know, edit out like big sections or stuff. And I guess I could have, been putting that stuff on my blog or, you know, something that didn't have a length requirement, but for whatever reason, I have an audience on Instagram. And so I've been trying to like shoehorn my calligraphy experience into a platform that is very different than it used to be for one. I mean, I was just, um, commiserating with a friend last night and I was saying, you know, Instagram is quite a bit different, uh, than it was a couple of years ago. And he says, yeah, I go to my explore feed and it's like hot yoga girl, hot yoga girl, hot yoga girl, handstands, anime, <laughs> fantasy art, hot yoga girl. And I went, that's so crazy. That's my explore feed too. And I said, but I've never looked up like hot yoga girl hashtag or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's like, what it is, is this Instagram. It's just these companies deciding like what is going to get our attention and what's going to keep me on the app and what's going to like, you know, get the most views, the clicks and things. And so they yeah. started prioritizing this other type of stuff, whatever. I'm not going to hate on someone doing yoga, but like, I don't go to Instagram to look at hot yoga girls. I'm, I would love to just be able to go to my explore feed and see just calligraphy or yeah. just, you know, uh, like woodworking just and handcraft binding. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just that stuff. And like have control over that. Um, but that's yeah. not what it is anymore. Right. It's, it, mm. and it's not going back to that. Things only move one direction and that's towards the capitalist incentive of the shareholders, right? So you think about like our crafts. So we, we have these three respective crafts, bookbinding, woodworking, calligraphy. And I don't know about you guys, but calligraphy is not a four by five dimensionally restricted art form. Like a pen <laughs> is not that shape. The paper is not that shape. The ink is not that shape. Nothing yeah. is that shape. Um, and the problem with that is, okay, well, if I want to film like a really artsy video, right? And I want to have it be like really well filmed and I want to do a voiceover and I want to think about what I'm showing and I want to like storyboard the sequences. Okay. If I'm going to do that for Instagram, I have to shoot that in portrait, which means I can never share that on YouTube or Vimeo or anything like that. 
And that means that I'm limited to 60 seconds, which is just another version of that. Your caption is too long. It's like, Mm -hmm. oh, we want to hear what you have to say, but we don't want to hear all of it. And that's been really hard for me because calligraphy is a very slow art form. Like you sit Mm -hmm. down and it's meticulous and you spend hours and hours laboring over something. You show it to someone and go, oh, wow, that's really pretty. And you go, and that's 10 hours of work. (laughs) You know, it's like, it's the same thing as I would imagine someone picking up one of your books, Brian, and going, that's crazy. I can't believe someone can do that. And then setting it back down or handing it back to you. And you go, wait, you don't want to look at the stitching? (laughs) Or tossing it back down. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. Like just dropping it on the table. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine that. I'm going to be very careful when I meet you to like very gingerly place your book back on its felt pedestal. (laughs) No, 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 don't. In fact, that's actually something that um, I, I labor very hard towards breaking that. I think there are certain um, types of books that are more intended to be seen as a form. The book is the form of artistic expression, mm-hmm. whether it's a very traditional form or something that's a little bit more, you know, unconventional. Yeah. But mm-hmm. for me personally, I mean, you know, I make a lot of blank books and mm-hmm. I want them to be something that is approachable. And something that people feel comfortable with, like putting in their back pocket and forgetting about and sitting on. And like there are some historic books that I have that are a few hundred years old. And <laughs> you can see <laughs> that they're like perfectly curved to like a butt cheek. Oh, like, there you definitely go. somebody was like, <laughs> definitely <laughs> someone just like had it in their back pocket. No kidding. <laughs> That's cool. And so that that to me, there's something about historic books that touches on this thing that's like from a distance, there's these, there are these beautiful objects. They're ornate. They're sometimes really gaudy. Sometimes they're really cool and minimal and like moody. Mm-hmm. But when you look at them up close, you can see that there are these little, you know, maybe the boards weren't trimmed perfectly square or maybe the gold tooled line it sort of isn't perfectly straight and has a little wiggle in it yeah. or the, the letters that make the title up sort of dance across the spine rather than like perfectly you know, align with whatever the horizontal is. Yeah. And so that to me, those little teeny um, evidences of the hand or idiosyncrasies or mm-hmm. would have always really appealed to me. Mm-hmm. And so with my own work, I try to find ways of, um, you know, capturing those elements of historic bindings that make them approachable, but allow them to still be like well-crafted and beautiful. Yeah. So that people can feel comfortable with using something that is also hopefully beautiful to them. That's awesome. There's, there's my spiel. (laughs) That's really cool. I think going, touching on a facet of that, that I've thought a lot about is like calligraphers talk about those idiosyncrasies. We, we call them like these small inconsistencies and that's what Mm, makes calligraphy beautiful is like you look at it and there are all these little things. Um, And people use that as an argument for why computer algorithms will never be able to replace like, you know, dynamic type will never replace true calligraphy. Um, but we're to the point now where like you can bake that type of stuff into the algorithm where the computer can mess up a stroke here, you know, wobble a hairline there or whatever. And, um, you start to get into this idea where the real thing that makes any handcrafted anything valuable isn't necessarily the product anymore. It used to be that the product was a lot more refined or a lot more attention paid to it as manufacturing gets better. That's not going to be the case what makes the stuff so valuable is the the mere knowledge that it was made by a person, which I just mm-hmm. call the sentiment. And that's why as things progress, like I'm not worried about not having a job in 20 years when you can't go to a McDonald's and see a real person inside. 
Um, right. Because there will always be people that will want whatever the thing that you made just because they know that it was made by hand. Now we'll be in trouble if we get into like a placebo thing where machines are making things and tricking people into thinking they're being made by hand. <laughs> But, or are making hands. <laughs> or making hands, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think that that's, that's the real interesting thing about it. It's like moving forward. It's no longer like just about the little idiosyncrasies or things. It's more about like the connection that you as a human being feel with looking at something like the spine of a book and saying, oh, that one's a little crooked. And we can empathize with you know, how that might've felt, or if, if we wonder if maybe the person who had stamped that had been disappointed, that didn't come out straighter, or we remember a time that we had worked really hard on something. And at the very end had like done something that some people might see as, you know, a smudge on it or something like that. That's super interesting to me. Cause I think about sort of like the arts and crafts movement in the late 19th, early 20th century mm -hmm. how, and how that was like, well, we can still make stuff by hand that's like as good or better than machines. And mm. I know that's not the whole point of that movement, but it was still, it sort of seemed like a competition with machines. Mm -hmm. And nowadays with, you know, the new wave of kind of whatever we're in right now with handcraft on the rise again in a lot of places, uh, in spite of digital technology or whatever, yeah. it's really interesting because it's more like, it's just, yeah, it's a mere fact. It's like a way of, maintaining our connections to other people mm -hmm. and maybe that's why hand social media has been important uh for handcraft mm -hmm. in that it's a way for people who are getting products to also feel connected to their source and the person behind them yeah uh, mm -hmm. when that's not always possible in person so i don't know that's a that's really interesting i'm looking forward to pondering that more yeah <laughs> yeah i think this the social media aspect of it is in, is probably the most relevant thing to a lot of you know newcomers that are trying to build a name for themselves or like start their business or you know mm -hmm. find opportunities and stuff and just going back to the uh the quote from earlier like i think that social media has given us all the soapbox to stand up on but the confines that come with uh, you know, whatever particular platform you choose or things like that, a lot of the times those drawbacks can be limiting to your growth as an artist. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's mm -hmm. kind of what I was trying to say with my, um, with the thing I wrote is like, mm -hmm. I don't want to be a calligrapher because of Instagram. I would like to be a calligrapher independent from wherever I share my calligraphy. And then if it fits in that, you know, area, great. But I've spent too long worrying about making content that will, you know, perform well or, uh, followers right. or like whatever. And I've had like some crazy opportunities that have come along specifically just from Instagram. Like, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I consulted on the Academy Awards a couple of years ago and they found me through Instagram. Wow. <laughs> like that's a thing that I never would have had if it wasn't for that. But at the end right. of the day, like if I'm spending time on my phone or on my computer or whatever, then that's time I'm not spending with a pen in my hand. That's time we're not mm -hmm. spending interacting with students or forming real friendships with people, you know, mm -hmm. and I think that stuff is infinitely more important. Yeah, see, it's definitely a balancing game. I mean, mm -hmm. for example, the three of us all met strictly through social media, Yeah, but you can take it and actually turn it into something that is quote unquote real, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But 
Yeah. No, I really, I like that. Yeah. It's about just those, the balance and the boundaries kind of thing, but also, you know, embracing certain parts of the benefits, I guess. Um, totally that it can bring people who work in isolation together. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's (laughs) another, the huge thing is like, I imagine all three of our crafts are somewhat, um, solitary in nature. Yeah. Uh, I mean, certainly for me personally, but that being said, if I do have, uh, like one of my closest friends lives here in town and she's also a book binder. So it's pretty awesome because there are a lot of times that we'll get together and, um, you know, work on projects together. Or like if I'm having trouble figuring something out, we can go and talk about it over a coffee or whatever. Totally. And so that's one of my favorite parts of living in Bloomington. You rock, Mary. (laughs) (laughs) So David, is there someone inside of penmanship that you admire um, inside your craft and maybe outside of your craft? That's an interesting one. Obviously, uh, just by nature of the fact that I'm studying something historical, a lot of the people that I admire are now passed away. So I feel like it's a little bit of a cop out to try to (laughs) say one of them. If I was to pick someone contemporary, he's pretty private. I've got a friend named Andrew uh, from England. And the reason that I would talk about him in this context is that over the years, like I'm saying, calligraphy is pretty solitary and it can be very isolating. I mean, there have been days where before I lived with my girlfriend, I, you know, I didn't have, um, I didn't talk to anyone for a whole day. I would go to the grocery store just to check out and just to talk to the cashier. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, like Brian saying, having a small community, having someone that you can bounce ideas off of someone that can, commiserate with you, someone that can get excited about, you know, a book that you bought on eBay or whatever. That's huge. Like that's, I, without this Andrew guy, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be a calligrapher still. I definitely would have given up. Wow. Cool. And so, you know, you have, uh, reasons for respecting people. Some people we respect for their, you know, skill or their talent. Some people we respect for the way that they, conduct themselves. Um, with him, I would say it's like his consistency and his loyalty and his ability, whether or not he can produce this, whether or not we, you know, produce the same type of work, but his ability to talk to me about my work as if he was me. Like I, I trust his judgment as much as I trust my own. And so that's mm-hmm. a, I think that's a really rare thing. And I, I would, if anyone is in any kind of craft, I would recommend, you know, seeking someone out that, when they give you advice, it can almost just be your natural devil's advocate or, you know, they can be the other part of the conversation. And it's not someone that you, uh, that when they tell you something, you have to filter it through a, well, do I really want to listen to that or not? It's like, no, of course you're going to value that. Of course you're going to consider it. And I find that's, that's difficult with, um, probably with being a little bit of an egomaniac and thinking that like, I've got everything figured out, you know, like I could get advice from someone. And if I am already convinced that I have the answer, then there was no point in asking a question. Sure. Um, but with him, it's always like, yeah, all right, let me think about that. Cause maybe I am wrong or misguided or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that would be within the craft, um, outside of the craft. I appreciate all sorts of different things. I mean, I appreciate, uh, Brian and Luis for their bookmaking stuff. Um, and Luis resp- uh, refers to Luis Biscon, who is an incredible uh, French trained and 
French person, but living in Belgium. <laughs> find yeah, her. <laughs> she's, she's super, super sweet. Uh, I really look up to some sign painters. Like there's a gentleman mm-hmm. from England named David Smith, who I've, you know, other people have told me that he's like once in a generation, you know, incredible artist. But I just, you know, when he talks, the way he talks about the little elements of the things he's working on, I've just always been moved by like his attention to detail, that kind of stuff. Uh, mm. Oddly enough, I think a lot of my calligraphy is influenced by musicians. Um, so I've mm. like tried to maintain really good relationships with a couple of different musicians over the years and use their um, use their music in my Instagram videos. And like, I play it on my studio playlist and I play it when I'm at events. And I, I mean, one of them, Sean, my buddy, Sean from here in Portland or here in Oregon. Anyway, he kind of like was helping me learn guitar for a while. You know, he's like, I think there are all these different interesting people that you meet in your life that maybe influence your, uh, your, journey i've never been one to look up to like a guru or anything so if i was to say like elon musk because he's inspired you know (laughs) like i think elon's a cool enough guy and i'm excited for starlink and all that but um (laughs) i think like i I prefer to idolize uh well maybe idolize the wrong word but i prefer to look up to like my friends and people who are around me because i feel like that gives me an opportunity to say okay well i can be more like sean or i can be more like andrew or I can yeah. be more or like the whatever. mysterious David. The mysterious David, <laughs> like a shadow. <laughs> so, um, outside of the craft room now, what else are you interested in? Sounds like music is something. Yeah, um, music. Yeah. Um, I would love to be more into like gardening and growing things. I'm not the best at it. I had a really nice little tree going that I tried to. Uh, hardened by putting it outside a couple of days and it got sunburned. So I'm a little sad Aww. that I don't, I don't know if it's going to make it, but we'll see. Um, recently with the, uh, I guess we're recording this during the pandemic. Um, mm-hmm. My neighbor is really into tabletop uh, board games and I've never mm-hmm. been like, as in like monopoly as in like Warhammer and like strategy games oh. where you're moving these Ooh. things. Yeah. And I have never been like very interested in that type of stuff. But I will say he got me to paint a miniature with him, which was like, oh, do you want to paint one of these little models? And I said, sure. And that was a lot of fun. And then <laughs> he was like, do you want to build some terrain? And I said, yes. So now I've, <laughs> I've built this like crumbling castle wall where out on the bandsaw, I like cut all the individual bricks and like I filed them down and distressed them. And I built the whole wall out of wood glue and sawdust and it's, <laughs> it's gonna, so cute it's gonna be a whole thing so i'm kind of getting into that a little bit for a long time actually and this is this really influences my artwork too but for a long time i was really into athletics so i was uh there's a handball <laughs> handball <laughs> um, no i trained uh this thing called parkour oh yeah i've heard of wait that. so are you like a i had a friend in college who also said he was into parkour but then you'd see the videos and you were like that's not quite what i was picturing it (laughs) as and so i was wondering how that (laughs) i don't know i don't know exactly what you mean but i'm assuming that when you think parkour you think like flips and jumping off of buildings and stuff and then when he showed you videos it was like him running around on a lawn and doing some rolls and stuff yeah it was like doing monkey bars or like jumping off a curb yeah okay (laughs) so i'm somewhere in between the two 
I trained, <laughs> I trained for about 10 years and it was like all off and on. I, the first five years I was training like almost every day. I, I mean, I was young, so I didn't need a lot of rest days. I was traveling all over the Southwest United States. I was meeting all these people. I was organizing, like we called them jams. So I was organizing like groups of tricers, um, which are people that train parkour back in the day. We used to call ourselves tricers, which means pathfinders. Wow. Yeah. Ooh. And we would, uh, would go, you know, <laughs> go out to like a campus, a college campus, and, like jump around all day. But I, um, I've always been of like the idea that it's all about um, just finding ways to use your body. And our mantra back then was be strong to be useful. So it was all about like training for this eventual someday scenario where you have to do one thing. And actually, just while I'm on the topic of that, uh, parkour has saved my life twice. Uh, I was oh, wow. I was in a climbing accident, a free uh, a bouldering accident where Whoa. we were in Arizona and it was um, like a early morning on a January day and we were climbing this, uh, rise out behind my hometown that's built, that's built, <laughs> that's uh, made out of decomposing granite. And we were up about 60 feet and a boulder that I was pulling myself up onto let go off the mountain. What? Yeah. Oh I was like gosh. about, I, I recall it correctly. It was about the size of like, uh, the hood of a car. So yeah. if you imagine like a 700 to 1200 pound rock, just wow. pulling on the mountain and I was hanging on it. Like I was fully on it. My hands and my feet were on it. Oh my it. gosh. And because of my training, I was able to immediately like turn and it's called a return cat. So I turn and push off with my hands and then pivot 180 degrees and kick off of this rock while it's falling through the air and landed on this other rock that thank God didn't break as well. Um, Whoa. And it was just one of those things I had to sit down. I was all shaking. Everyone was like, oh, David, are you okay? And there was this kid, Billy, who was a couple years younger than, than us, who it was underneath of us. And I thought that I had killed him, like that this rock that had smashed him. And I was like, someone find Billy. And I couldn't even move. And it turned out he had like gone around another way to try to beat us to the top. And so he was fine. Um, oh, wow. But I 100% like without a doubt believe that if I had not been trained that I would have died that day, which would have been a very strange, um, end to my, to my story. So, (laughs) which is weird to think like if I hadn't been training, I also probably wouldn't have been climbing that way or whatever. I would have been climbing a different way. So there, you know, it all levels out. But I think that's the thing I like about parkour and I like about, uh, physical fitness is like, I like the idea that, um, just kind of life is like a whole body experience and you can choose to prioritize your health for various reasons. You know, some people do it for vanity. Some people do it for utility. Some people do it as a meditative or a, you know, a centering thing. Like we were going back to that earlier. But, um, for me, I've noticed even from a artistic or creative standpoint that like when I am running regularly and eating better and just feeling and getting more sleep, you know, that kind of stuff that that really does, benefit me as a as an artist dang we need to put david and tim manny in the same room i know yeah they would get along <laughs> i think a lot tim is a uh, chair maker who we interviewed for episode four is he uh, is he like a mud runner or something what is he what is no he 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 just well amy can probably explain it better uh, than i can he's really interested in like just the mechanics of your body basically uh-huh. and like how to make things more ergonomic yep. and um, and I think he spends a lot of time surfing too. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. He's just, he, it's interesting to talk to him because I feel like it's not something that I've, I don't think I've ever heard a woodworker talk about 
like ergonomics and like making things easier on your body and mm. um other than like move your leg over here so you don't put the accent right yeah it's like don't stab yourself or something like that and he's yeah like, you know what you know the position that i try to put myself in every day instead of like looking down while he's turning legs is to just to make it as ergonomic as possible and like hmm. think about where he's putting his weight you know yeah, yeah. and that kind of stuff so it's just it's it's nice to hear about yeah interesting i think that reminds me of uh my favorite potter his name's florian gatsby and, uh, oh, yeah, oh, okay. <laughs> so he had a thing that he wrote a couple of years ago about what goes into making a mug that holds well in the hand mm. um, and like how he's paid attention to the various like shapes and contours and the I think even to the tune of like how you feel when you're holding a mug and like how that might change the way that you grasp it in your hand. I thought that was fascinating. Mm. So, yeah, I can appreciate mm -hmm. the optimization for ergonomics. So, David, if someone wants to see more of your work, where can they find you? All right. So the first thing is I have a website. And my website is www.mossgrimes.com. Um, that's M-A-S-G-R-I-M-E-S. -E my middle name is Thomas, and my last name is Grimes. So it's the second half of my middle name and my last name. Is that also like a pun off like more Grimes? Yep, it is. Okay. Oh, great. I thought I, I was hoping I was getting that. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. So you can find me on my website. Uh, I'm on most social media, so I have a Twitter, I have a Instagram, I have a Facebook, but don't add me there because I don't ever log in. I don't do a lot on social media these days because I'm kind of in this phase of my, uh, I guess, of my study where I'm trying to like circle the wagons and figure out where I'm going next and what the next probably five to 10 years of my practice looks like. Um, but as a result of doing that, I'm going to be publishing more on my website and I'm going to be working on a, uh, a new professional journal called the modern penman, which should hopefully come out this cool. year. Mm. And that'll be really interesting. That should be like a collection of conducted research and experiments and things from other industry professionals. And it's, uh, it's kind of geared towards people that maybe want to have a more progressive or scientific approach to the art of penmanship and writing. Well, David, thank you so, so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute, uh, an absolutely fascinating journey that you've taken <laughs> us on. Yeah, really. Thank you so much. It's very interesting. <laughs> Thanks for having me, guys. This has been, uh, this is real cool. I'm excited to hear the other episodes that uh, will come out before this. Yeah. yeah, great. Well, you couldn't have scripted that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks for that, Humble. <laughs> Next up, we have an interview with Black Ash basket weaver April Stone. And to give you a glimpse into her badass experiences with basket making, here's a brief clip from that interview. Well, that was kind of maybe by accident, though, because oh. we just kind of like spilled the wine a little bit on a basket. <laughs> and then we realized we couldn't get the wine out. So we just dyed the whole thing in wine. <laughs> Okay, Umble. Please feel free to hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review us because it helps with the show's visibility. Yes, and thank you so much to everyone who has already taken the time to rate the show or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's super important to help people find the show, so thank you. Also, thanks to everyone who has contributed to our Patreon account. Every dollar helps us bring you meaningful and entertaining interviews and enables us to build a community that supports folks trying to get into handcraft.
And uh, each week we're getting a little closer towards filling our minimum requirements for the t-shirts. And we have made an executive decision that even if we don't hit that mark, by the end of August, we will be placing an order for t-shirts. So to all of those of you who have been waiting for a while, uh, thank you for your patience. And now there is an end in sight. Right. You will be fully clothed. You can follow us on Instagram at Cut the Craft Podcast to see images of our guest work and stay up to date on happenings and releases. And you can find us both on Instagram at Amy underscore Umble and at BH Bidler. If you have any questions, interview requests, or other crafts you'd like to see represented, please email us at cutthecraftpodcast at gmail.com. And as always, we're forever grateful to those who've helped make this podcast a reality. Thanks to Brad Vetter for his graphic design, our good friends the High Divers for letting us use your tunes, our resident poet Justin Williams for your commercial wizardry, and Luke Mitchell of the High Divers for your help and advice with the technical side of things. We hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Thanks. See you next time. <laughs>